You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, as we continue on through uh, the COVID-19 crisis, I hope that uh, <laughs> I'm not putting too much of a date on this stuff, but after we get past this, the rest of the content's going to be good no matter when you're listening, right? <laughs> right. Well, and people need to know why in the world are we in separate rooms, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, we, we covered it last week, but I just want to kind of point that out for our YouTube people. Um, that, yeah, you got looks- great faith in them, that they're like watching se- sequentially. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, well, that's how I do stuff like this. And especially, I mean, we are in the middle of a series, so I guess we'll kind of see how this goes. Um, but yeah, so we're doing our thing. Uh, we are still in first Samuel. We're going to pick up on chapter 13. Um, last week we covered, uh, Saul's, uh, Samuel, Samuel's Samuel's farewell, farewell, <laughs> farewell yeah. address, farewell address. Yeah. I couldn't think of what it's called. Far- farewell address, which was more of a, uh, more of just like stepping down from office, not that he is actually going anywhere, and he's still definitely going to be involved in a lot for a little while. So, absolutely, who knows? Yeah, and we just get too many S names in this book, and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. always throws me off. You know, I, I well, well, like all the E's. Yeah, especially I mean, especially when it's it's Saul and Samuel, they're so very similar that you know it's it, it really does kind of throw you off. So. Um, well, and I think I mentioned it in a previous episode that that's seemed to possibly be intentional, that right. they're so similar. So right. It's kind of like uh, good Saul and bad Saul. <laughs> two sides of the same coin, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, the, the main difference being that mem, which represents the presence of the spirit within Samuel's name. So that's the reason we get that M sound stuck there in the middle of it. So, yeah, yeah fun, fun little linguistic things in Hebrew that you can pick up on and why everyone should study Hebrew. So my yeah. little pitch there. Hey, so. for those of us who have time, that's <laughs> right. Anyway. Otherwise just listen to us, you know, or some other great teacher. Yeah. We'll, Enough we'll, that we're, yeah. we'll do the best. We'll do the best we can. Um, anyhow. Uh, so yeah, going on into 13, uh, we're actually going to be getting into some really interesting stuff. So let's just go ahead and jump into that and, and uh, share, yeah. share what you got to have with us. So this is this is where Saul is starting to begin his, what he's been called to do as a king. Remember, the purpose of having a king is to fight the Philistines. Mm-hmm. And so now he's getting to step into that role, and we're going to see how he does this and what happens when he attempts to be the king who is going to do what the people have wanted of him. Now, remember that the Philistines had pretty much been subdued under Samuel that they hadn't had any major problems with them once they had that first big battle mm-hmm. when uh, Samuel took office as a prophet, really. And so the idea that they needed a king to fight the Philistines was completely erroneous and totally flawed and shows you that the purpose really wasn't about fighting the Philistines. It's about having a king to be like other nations, yeah. which they did admit. Yeah, erroneous so, and flawed. That's bad. though. Y- yeah. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> it's it's both. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. You gotta have you know the emphasis there. So anyway, watching too many politicians on TV. I what know. can they say? Yeah, fair <laughs> so, enough. Now Brueggemann breaks this chapter down into three distinct sections, 
And I think when you read through it, you can really see it. And what he says is verses one through seven and verses 15b through 23, which is the end of the chapter, really provide just setting for the theological meat that's kind of in the middle. And mm -hmm. so you've got to have all the details for what's going on around Saul to understand why his actions are significant. And so the writer spends actually more time telling you why the actions are significant than what they than what Saul's actually doing. Right. So, um, it, it, well, and it's kind of interesting. There's there's um, it it's one of those areas where they do explain it, where you often don't get that explanation in the Bible. You just have he did this, and we're just supposed to know. Yeah, yeah, and anytime you've got those kinds of details, that that's a tip-off. You need to be paying attention. Uh, there's a reason why the details are there because the, the Bible writers, you know, think about writing equipment and utensils and and uh, you know paper or parchment, clay tablets. How hard this stuff would be to come by, how hard it would be to transport, and so they use a lot of economic sense with their words. That they don't give you a lot of extra details because, well, it's a difficult thing to have that much going on and to transport, like I said, but it's also they assume that the only people reading this are people from their own time period. Mm -hmm. And so why would you explain everything? I mean, I don't have to break down what a television is to anyone I'm talking to. We, we know. And I think we forget how much we automatically just assume is a part of a language that we speak if we aren't looking at other languages and particularly languages from, from different cultures and times. So right, yeah, and I actually I had a, I heard had someone uh, I don't remember where I read this, but it was somebody uh, had a really great analogy for this. This they were uh, talking to a friend who's from another country who they didn't have like rock music there, and, and this was years ago. Uh, and <laughs> somebody picked up a, a, one of their records and was like, "Well, what does this sound like?" and like trying to explain what the Beatles sound like to someone <laughs> who's never heard rock music, uh, mm -hmm. might be a little uh, might be a little difficult. And so that's what I that's kind of where we are when we're reading the Bible. Whenever some of these phrases come up, we're like, well, first off, we have to build a whole world for you in your mind, right? So pretty much, and that's why studying ancient Near Eastern culture is so important and it's so vital, despite what many critics are saying now. If you don't have that world, and that's what the ancient Near Eastern studies give you it's that world it's the set mm -hmm. that allows you to understand what's going on and it, it's so crucial to to getting the bigger picture now i'm not saying it's necessary for faith and salvation i mean that that's not the point the point is if you want to engage this as actual historical events and mm -hmm. to honor the bible as a historical book then that's necessary right so um i'll get off my soapbox on that one because i'm kind of irritated by some of the things i'm reading yeah, yeah. Let's let's move on. So, let's get to the good stuff and, and quit harping <laughs> on the bad stuff, right? So, okay. So, one of the things that we're doing is we got to remember chapters nine through eleven were kind of this this build up and this affirmation of who Saul was. Now we're moving into chapters thirteen through fifteen, and they're kind of divided by that farewell address by Samuel. Thirteen and fifteen are the demise of Saul. This is where he's going to to meet his end as a king and you know eventually it's going to lead to his physical death. And the chapters all play on the same themes. We have the same main characters, you know, Saul and Samuel are central to both. Uh, we have these prophetic announcements. We have sacrifices at Gilgal and we also have these very decisive battles. So the 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 six chapters together kind of make this 
the sandwich of sorts with you know samuel being the creamy filling in the middle um but anyway your oreo sandwich analogy for you know bible scholars but so we're moving closer to to saul being the king and we're also moving closer to being shown why he's not a great king mm -hmm. and in the midst of that we're we're getting we're going to start to get some hints that david is arriving that he's going to be on the scene soon so all right all of that set up so first one uh you know, we start out with problems if you just read what the esv says uh it it's crazy so saul lived for one year then became a king and then he reigned for two years over israel that's interesting because my esv doesn't even have a number there okay um it says uh, well, saul was oh no saul was blank for was blank years old and then it says two years sorry in my esv do you have an older or newer one um i'm not sure uh i i would have to look do you have your blue one is that the one uh well it used to be green i think <laughs> okay yeah the green one that with the cross celtic cross on the front yeah yeah that's an older one okay yeah that's okay. an older one so uh, i'm so. guessing they filled in with a newer discovered document is that what we got well kind of sort of um this is this is one of those verses that the masoretic just makes no sense uh there, there's no way to make any sense of it because I mean, obviously saul's not one year old when he becomes king uh he wouldn't be out looking for donkeys at this point uh at least you know not with his father's knowledge uh the the septuagint just completely ignores it com leaves it out it, it's okay. not even there so the english relies on a combination of things uh josephus antiquities uh, he says in one spot that Saul is 40 years old when he becomes king, but then he turns around and contradicts himself and says Saul's 20 years old when he becomes king. So, you know, who knows? Uh, shows you how reliable Josephus is. Right. So, yeah, because uh, yeah, I, I, I thought that was interesting. And I did have one other question. I don't know if you're going to mention this. Have we referenced this verse, this chapter before, or was there a section like this in Judges where it just had an ellipsis for a number? Uh, I think there's a section in Judges that had that. So, okay. Yeah, was there, this is the was there any significance in that? or did... Just a break in the text, a lacuna. Okay. And so, it, yeah, we we have a hard time. Either the, the manuscripts were all contradictory or the main ones we relied on ha had a spot that was missing or, you know, the, the writing was too sloppy. Okay. All of these things become issues in, in translation work when you're working with the original manuscripts. Right. And I think a lot of people forget that we're dealing with handwritten documents mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that weren't always written in the best of conditions. And they certainly weren't preserved in the best of conditions either. So. Right. But so, this okay, is the reason sorry, why you use these. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. No, this is why you use these other sources. Now, one of the other sources we use, which is tends to be reliable, is the New Testament. Because Acts 13.21 says that Saul's 40 when he becomes king. But we still have a problem with the two years because reigning for two years, it doesn't make sense in the timeline. Because when we meet Saul, he's still a single young man living with his father. Mm -hmm. And then in this chapter, we're suddenly going to be introduced to a fully grown son. So there was the idea that he was only reigning for two years really doesn't make any sense and also it doesn't make any sense as far as like fighting the ammonites and the philistines within this time frame absolutely not likely not probable at all and just because of the the cost of battle at that point in time i mean you've got to think about 
you know, the, the ways food and, and weaponry and troops moved during this point in time, it wasn't nearly as efficient as it is today. Right. And then you've also got the problem of, you know, when they defeated the Ammonites, they were excited. They, they trusted God. They believed that God was going to fight on their behalf. And now what, when we move into this battle with the Philistines, it's like they've totally forgotten to be trusting. And they're actually, they're very fearful. Yeah. So, well, there, there is they, a they footnote. Were... I'll say there is a footnote in my ESV that says the two might not be the entire number. That, so it's yeah. possible, I guess, it would be either 12 or 20 or 22. And, or... And... <laughs> I can yeah. keep going. And, uh, well, and this, that's the thing. I mean, anything we try to insert is going to be a guess. And uh, we really aren't going to be able to back it up from historical sources. So, the thing is, it, it doesn't matter. Um, if we understand that things happen during this time frame and these are the events that happen, then who cares what the time frame really is? Now, the reason why it is still included in the Masoretic and the, the Bibles that rely on the Masoretic to translate is because it does set the formula. Uh, mm. The introductory formula for 17 other kings is the name of the king, his age, and how long he reigned. And then it's followed by a nice whole summation of his important activities as a king. Sure. So, you know, who knows? Um, it's not it's not one of those errors in the Bible I'm going to get upset about and worry about. Uh, it just it's it's it, a it's, it's a those... manuscript problem. It, it is all it is. It's it's either something was written down sloppy or it broke off of the translations we have. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't impact the theological message. Right. So the fact that the theological message is intact, that's the part that we need to be focused on. So in, in verse 2, we, we establish that um, Saul has a standing army. He's got 2,000 men that he leads himself, and they're in Michmash. This is the whole country of Bethel. And then Jonathan is, reigning, uh, sorry, is leading 1,000 men. And he's in Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is the capital of Israel at this time. And this is not a good place because you've got to remember that um, Gibeah is the place where the Levite's concubine was killed and mm. attacked by all the townspeople. So it's not a city that's worthy of being the capital of God's nation. On top of that, this city had been devoted to des destruction. It was put under Kerem. So it was not supposed to even be rebuilt. The fact that Saul would establish his capital there is automatically problematic. Mm -hmm. And so we, we need to realize, hey, we're not getting off to a good start right here. So Jonathan kind of just appears. He, he's fully grown. We don't know who his mother is. We don't know any of his background. All we know about him is that he's Saul's son. And his name, and his name means Yah has given. So Yahweh has given. So Saul gave him at least a good name. So um, we, our introduction is kind of a great introduction, though, because he begins with this defeat of uh, what it says in the ESV is a garrison of Philistines at Gibeah, which is not Gibeah, it's a, it's a distinct location. Okay. And the Philistines heard of it. Another textual problem here. Imagine that. So the word for garrison in Hebrew, when it's plural, it always means like a garrison, a, you know, a unit of troops, a, right. a body of, of, of armed men. 
but here it's singular and this is like the only place that it's singular so what has been suggested is not that he defeated you know dozens or hundreds or however many men he might have defeated in a garrison but he actually defeated a single person and so the proper translation would be more like prefect or governor or, or general or like the leader Basically. of the garrison yeah like the leader of the garrison exactly so the the idea being that he killed somebody highly influential that provoked the philistines to attack which hmm. is you know it, it makes it, that makes more sense in the context because we aren't being set up for a miraculous event at this point we aren't being uh, set up for some kind of overwhelming victory. We just have this this introduction to Saul's son. Well, and, and so, and, and if that was the case, that would actually be an interesting parallel to what we find later whenever David shows up on the scene. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, in in Saul's defeat, he provoked the army, and in in or Saul defeating this person, it would have provoked the army into war. And then if when David did it, it would have. Uh, given the Israelites victory in a war that had already started. So that is kind of interesting um, if that yeah, is the it, case. I think you meant when Jonathan defeated this instead of Saul, but yeah. That, no, 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 no. When, there it says, are... when, when it says Saul defeated, you were talking about the, you were saying it's possible that Saul defeated the, uh, the garrison. Like it Jonathan would have been the, de- what? Jonathan defeated, Jonathan defeated the garrison. <laughs> Where are we at here? Am I at the wrong one? Verse three. Verse three. Verse oh, three. And, uh, okay. So, but yeah, yes. When Jonathan defeated the garrison, sorry. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. There, there, so. there, you picked up on something because there are a lot of parallels with David and Jonathan, which you know would explain why they're they're such good friends. Right. So, um, you know, of course, we don't know this at this point in time, but that when we see Jonathan's story played out, Jonathan really is being set up as the worthy one for the kingship. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of things to celebrate, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about that. I won't get sidetracked just yet on that. So, um, verse three, uh, the the second part there, Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." Okay, so this is really interesting because um, there's a lot of background that the writer is just assuming that you know, of course, blowing the shofar. Right. Uh, we're right back with Ehud, uh, Judges three twenty seven. So we we've got this call back to the judges. There's a lot of call back to the judges in this in this chapter. Hebrews is a pejorative term. Uh, it's not something that people would have called themselves. And so right. the fact, yeah, <laughs> the fact that Saul is using it. Go ahead. I, I picked up on that, but I, I'm, I'm curious what you have on, on this. Yeah, well, and I, when we find it in the Bible, typically it's other nations speaking of the nation of Israel as hebrews i mean this is this is kind of like i said it's not a good thing to be called um but it denotes ethnicity Mm -hmm. and one of the big questions i always get asked about judaism are people jewish by birth or is that a religion and the answer is yes um so it's the idea that there's a difference between being an ethnic jew and being a religious jew and so Mm -hmm. The, what some commentators have suggested is that Saul is saying, hey, those of you who've stepped out of the covenant, those of you who are actually with the Philistines right now, you need to come back. Yeah, you're Hebrew, but you, you aren't an Israelite. You're not a son of God. And when we find sure. those terms, Israelite and son of, uh, son of Israel, or son of, not son of God, sorry, son of Israel, we're talking about someone who has taken on the full yoke 
of Judaism and is willing to accept that as their identity, that they're servants and children of God and that they're going to, to serve God. If you're Hebrew, well, then you just had parentage that was Hebrew. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean anything to you beyond that. So, um, you know, basically what a lot of commentators feel like Saul's doing is calling to those who've gone over to the other side and said, hey, you need to return to us. You need to come back, be on the winning side, be on the right side of history, if you will. And, you know, we have to remember that the Hebrews living among the Philistines, this isn't a far-fetched far concept. Uh, we've got Samson going back and forth from the Philistine to the uh, Israelite cities in Judges. And we've got the, you know, when Judah was upset with him for, for disturbing the status quo, Mm -hmm. So we're also we're gonna have some more evidence that this is probably the case coming up, but we'll get there as the text presents it. So verses four and five, we have this little outline that uh, Israel hears of Saul's victory over the Philistines. Notice it's not Jonathan's. So what the news Israel is getting is that Saul won this victory, and <clears throat> excuse me. Jonathan is not getting the credit that he deserves. And Israel becomes a stench to the uh, Philistines. So basically, the Philistines are going to, they're going to fight back. Mm -hmm. They're going to retaliate. And that, that phrase there is kind of interesting. To become a stench to the enemies reminds us of uh, Genesis with the rape of Dina. Uh, and whenever mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Jacob tells his sons, you've made me a stench to the people here. So it does have some, some significance in, in the way that the Bible has used it overall. So Saul prepares for battle by calling the people to Gilgal, and the, the Philistines call their army. Now remember, Saul's army is only 3,000 men. That's it. So that's all he's got. The Philistines have 30,000 chariots, and the troops are like the sands, sands of the seashore. So... Mm -hmm. We're already kind of getting a hint that when we're talking of the Philistines and Israel, it, it is that David and Goliath situation. And it has always been that David and Goliath situation. Right, right. So <clears throat> the Philistines, they, they set up a camp at Michmash. Now, this had been Saul's former base of operation. And the two armies have kind of traded places now because the Philistines who had been at Gibba are no longer there. Jonathan's taken that over. So... We've got this full reversal at the very beginning of the chapter of this. There's a lot of milling about. There's a lot of uh, uh, strategy going on. And so we've got this kind of interesting. Um, we've got this interesting presentation of how active everything's going to happen mm -hmm. and how active everything is. And it's terrifying, the Israelites, that they are scared to death. Excuse me. The pollen's getting me over here. Oh, no, it's terrible. I, I, I did some weed eating near some cedars yesterday, and I'm still kind of feeling that. So verse 6, we'll get back to the, the text. You can hear about my ailments later on Facebook. <laughs> so anyway, in verse 6, uh, we're told that the people are hiding themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks in tombs and cisterns. So we have this whole list of, you know, hiding places. And Any place you can squeeze a body. Pretty much. And if you'll remember back in Judges 6-2, uh, the Israelites were hiding from the Midianites in these same kinds of places. Mm -hmm. And this was right before Gideon. And there's a lot of comparison with Gideon here in, in the whole story. 
And so some of the people in verse 7 were told they're fleeing across the Jordan. And those who stayed to follow Saul are trampling. Okay. <laughs> picking up where picking up where we left off. Sorry about that. We that was some allergy <laughs> issues here. So <laughs> Yeah, the joys of living in Oklahoma. So in verse seven, um, we also find out the people are fleeing across uh, the Jordan. And and those who are, are with Saul, they're they're trembling. They followed Saul trembling. And, you know, and contrast that with the Ammonites when, when they went up and they were so bold and the spirit of the Lord is with them. And here there's no mention of the spirit of the Lord. So we've got this nice little setup, but now we're getting ready to get into the meat of the chapter. And that's going to run through verses 8 through 15a. Now, this is where Saul makes the first major mistakes of his reign. And, and the consequences of all of this are going to lead to him losing the throne. They're going to lead to him losing the crown. And, and it all begins right here. Now, he's going to continue to reign after this. But the problem is he's going to be reigning with the knowledge that his son's not going to inherit the kingdom. Right. Now, in, or, in order to be a real king, you have to have an heir. Otherwise, what are you? You're, you're just a judge. You're, you aren't anything more significant than a judge because if there's no dynasty to be passed on or, or to form, then then you really aren't forming a kingdom. You're, you're just a ruler. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that's going to be playing with Saul's head throughout the rest of his reign, too. Right. <clears throat> so verse yeah. eight, Saul's. And, and it does seem, seem to take its toll as time goes on. And it's progressive. Right. And we'll we'll see how progressive it is. And th this is so interesting how many little things come out about who Saul is and about what he's doing. And so Saul is at Gilgal, and he has waited seven days for Samuel to appear. Um, you know, this is another debate. Is this what Samuel was talking about when Samuel appointed him king the first time? You know, he tells him that there's going to be all these signs, and this is what he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so we we don't know if this is that event or not. What we well, do know is that the troops are deserting at an alarming rate, which is freaking Saul out. Well, it, well, it would, and, and uh, but I do think it is. I, I was because I was wondering about the what you're saying. If this is what Samuel, I, I hadn't tied it back to what Samuel initially told Saul to do, uh, mm -hmm. but I was wondering. I'm like, there's no. Specific instructions here in this chapter for Saul to wait seven days. It just you get, and that's the debate. <laughs> yeah, you you get there and you, and Saul saying, "Hey, you didn't get here when you said you were going to." So either that conversation happened off panel, or um, or it was that previous conversation. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. What is going on here? Um, there is a uh, argument that this is a separate event from what Samuel told him to do. Mm -hmm. And so if it is, um, that that makes things easier to understand. There would have been had to have been a secondary conversation, perhaps sure. going to a place of worship before a battle. We know that going to a place of worship before a battle was kind of standard. Um, the seven-day waiting period may or may not have been part of what happened there. We aren't really for sure. The um if if it isn't the this if it isn't I'm sorry, if it is the, the command that Samuel gave him, then we're gonna have to assume that Samuel expected Saul to hang on to these words 
from you know for decades mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that would have been i mean that, that's kind of a harsh thing to do um you know it's not like the torah where everybody's practicing it day in and day out and they're supposed to hang on to these words for their entire lives this is a one-time command in the middle of probably what was an emotionally overwrought situation for Saul yeah, and to be able to hang on to that for all this time. I mean, that would have taken some great dedication. There's, like I said, there is a debate. Nobody's really certain what it is exactly going on here. And then there, there's the question of whose law, who, whose command did Saul break? Uh, because Samuel isn't quoting uh, anything back to, you know, the Torah, any kind of command that the, the Bible has given him. In fact, he, he's just saying that this is what you were told to do. So, you know, is he saying that because I, as a prophet, spoke this to you, this is what you were supposed to do, and you violated my word, therefore you violated the law of God? Um, well, I, 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 when I read this, I just kind of assume that it's because uh, Saul's not a, uh, a Levite. There, there is that, and, and that's the thing. He, he was not authorized to give sacrifices, and so there could be reference to, to that in particular, but then you've got to talk about, well, did Saul actually give the sacrifice himself? Because we have other passages that talk about Solomon and David giving sacrifices, and it's completely okay. Now, mm-hmm. most commentators think in that uh in those contexts that basically Solomon and David offered the sacrifices, but they offered it in the same way that like Hannah offered her sacrifice. She took the things to be sacrificed and then the priest actually performed the ceremony. Right. Which is proper. Um, So this seems to imply that Saul actually did it himself, which in that case, if you are correct, and a lot of people do read it that way, and I, I tend to lean that way myself, then yes, Saul is completely out of line because he is not an authorized priest. Right. And so um Saul he when he offers the sacrifice and we're now in verses 9 and 10 it, it the Bible sets it up almost like, you know, Samuel is waiting in the bushes. Aha, you know. <laughs> Saul waited 23, you know, 6 days, 23 hours, 59 minutes and Samuel was just just holding back for that last little second to see if mm-hmm. if Saul could hold out. And you know, Saul, he doesn't he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. When he goes out to meet Samuel, he he's happy, you know, hey, we've done all the stuff. We we're all good. We've all eaten. We've worshiped God and hey, we're glad to have you here. And so he's kind of taken aback when when Samuel asks him, "What have you done?" And he doesn't even understand that he's done something wrong. And what's interesting about this question is we've heard it before. Mm-hmm. We, th- this question first occurs. Uh, In okay, Genesis. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. God asked Eve, what have you done? And I, I think there's, gonna, there's something to the fact that God asked Eve this question, not Adam. And so um, God asked Eve, what have you done? And and Samuel echoes those words here. And the implication with what Samuel is saying, and possibly because of this retelling with what God's saying to Eve, is you knew what you were doing was deliberately disobedient. You you should not have done this. Mm -hmm. And, And it signals back to that break in relationship that requires removal. 
because mm-hmm. what happens after Eve does this? She and Adam removed from the garden. Saul's going to be removed from the throne. So Saul evidently was not a good scholar of the Bible because verse 11 and 12, he continues with this theme that we've seen in Genesis. He, he starts with his excuses. Well, the troops were deserting us. You weren't here. The Philistines are gathering to attack. And I forced myself to, mm-hmm. to, to offer the sacrifice. I had to appease the people. And what did Eve do when God asked her that question? Well, you know, the serpent and, and is that, that, you know, shifting the blame. And I think it's really interesting how we don't often talk about what a big deal blame shifting is in the Bible. It, it's every time somebody does it, God is not happy with them. And so the, the sages pick up on this and, and they said that if Saul had accepted responsibility, if he had immediately repented and he had asked for mercy, then God would have forgiven Saul and he would have retained the throne forever. And they support this by pointing to the fact that when Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts David about Bathsheba, David's response is to repent. And so he retains the throne. And even though you know Nathan had promised dire consequences, and under the law he should David should have experienced dire consequences. Well, but I, I mean, you can also kind of back that up with like Samuel immediately follows this with, "Hey, had you done what you were supposed to do, the Lord would have established established your kingdom forever." You know, so you kind of have yeah. it right there in the same passage. You don't even have to get to the to to the David stuff. Um, well, but there's problems with this too. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. There's always problems. There, there's know? always a problem. No, it, and one thing, and I don't know if uh, <laughs> if if you're planning to get to this part, but one of, one of the things I I thought was interesting was that Saul said we hadn't we had not inquired of the Lord, and it was mm-hmm. almost like he was saying, you know, we hadn't sought the Lord's favor. We have before we can go into battle, we have to do a sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? You know, in mm-hmm. in he was just kind of trying to make that excuse. And again, kind of that, um, like we talked about before, that very superstitious type of uh, belief that Saul kind of seemed to have towards God and it, that he was, you know, well, before I can, I have to, I have to go through all the right motions or God's not going to bless me kind of thing. And we're right back to Eli and his sons with, with you know, which is how the book uh, opened up. So we're, we're being reminded that this superstitious kind of manipulative attitude towards God is it's not going to get you anywhere. And matter of fact, it's, it's worthy of judgment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Samuel, when he um, when he pushes back against Saul, you know, he says, I'm going to grab my notes and read it off my. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Hi. Which way are you going <laughs> with this? I have no idea. Uh, so Samuel verses, uh, 13 and 14 and Saul, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of, of your God, of your, the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom for is over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue mm-hmm. now. Um, uh, just kind of what you said now, typically uh, when the Lord's command, again, we're back to that, who, whose command are we talking? Um, which, you know, Samuel's referenced it three times in the last three verses. Mm-hmm. It refers to the Torah. Um, Samuel's not referring again back to anything in the Torah. And um, 
Bergman argues that the only command that Saul really broke is um, he broke Samuel's command. And the thing is, within this speech, if the speech is true, then we have some major problems because Saul's kingdom couldn't be established forever if Genesis 49.10 is going to be true, too. Genesis mm-hmm. 49.10 is Jacob's blessing to his sons and is him speaking to Judah. Right. And he says, and the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between the feet until the tribute comes from him. Sure. So um, trying to kind of work out some some way to reconcile how both of these things could could be true, it, the sages said basically that they there was possibility of co-regency, that there would be two coexisting kings side by side, that okay. there would not be one king in Israel, which has some really big implications when we start talking about two powers in heaven, uh, which I'm not going to go into that, but... Uh, well, and it also uh, has some interesting implications when you look at uh, when the kingdom divides later. Mm-hmm. It does. And so we'll have to get more into that when we get to the divided kingdom. But, you know, really the the idea that, that both of these things can be true simultaneously is it's troubling. And, and there's not a really good way to, to reconcile it unless we're willing to just go, hey, God's sovereign. God's omniscient. And, you know, I'm okay with that answer. I am completely fine with that answer. And I don't think we need a better one. Well, I mean, there's there's plenty of places where different things, things that seem contradictory, uh, you know, are true. But there's there's a different way to do it that that just pops up. I'm trying to think of an example of that, but I know that there there are some. We'll we'll keep going and we'll, we'll stumble across them eventually. So fair enough. The the other thing that I think we miss in this is that basically what Saul was doing was usurping Samuel's role. Saul was trying to be both priest and king, and he can't do that. Right. There, there's only one who's allowed to be prophet, priest, and king, and it's not Saul. And well, there's well, and that that would be. Um... Actually, if you look at that, you know, look at the king trying to be the the priest, and you counter that with um, uh, who was the guy at the beginning of the book, the Hoffman, uh, 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 the, oh, uh, Eli, uh, Eli, why? I totally <laughs> blanked on his name. Um, if you can compare that with Eli, you were talking about, you know, him sitting at the at the temple entrance. Uh, that would be a position of power that typically would be reserved for a king. So you kind of have this opposite thing going on. That's an interesting observation. And, and uh, while you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, Moses and, and Aaron, the, the divide between leadership and the pr- uh, priestly role there, which was mm-hmm. not what God intended at the beginning. And you can go back and read through that. And I know people wanna, will want to argue that. Uh, go back and read through the events surrounding Aaron being the priest versus Moses fulfilling both roles, being both leader and priest. Mm-hmm. And so, there, this divide is not something that God even ordained at, at the beginning. It's something that he allowed to happen, and he made concessions for what was going on in that moment. And as he set that in place, you know, that became the standard. Now, this is how things are going to be done. This is how you as humanity decided 
you needed it in order to be obedient. Mm -hmm. I will make divine concessions for you, but we're going to stick to them. And it's kind of the same thing we're seeing here with the king. You know, you wanted a king, fine, but this is how it's going to play out. And yeah. so everything that, that human humanity or human uh, prophets ask for or argue or say, hey, you know, God, your way just really isn't going to work for us. And God says, hey, that's fine. We can do it your way. It turns out not to be a great thing in the end. Right. And so it, we, we need to, like, realize we, we need to trust God and just follow his plans. But, um, you know, he, when when Saul is doing this and he's fa failing to respect um, Samuel's role as the prophet and as the priest, because Samuel does occupy both of those roles, mm -hmm. uh, he's he, he's not showing the respect to the offices that God has ordained. And, and by not respecting those offices, he is disqualifying himself as, you know, someone worthy of being a king. Right. And this is, we're, we're starting to see a hint that Saul's really good about um, trying to do things in a religious way to cover his butt. I mean, he, he is trying to make sure uh, we needed the sacrifice to make sure we heard from God. Again, back to that magical thinking. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to do, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to observe these forms of religion in order to prove how pious and wonderful I am. So God is obligated to take care of me. But, you know, the, the point is he, he, he won't listen. He won't do what the prophet told him. He won't obey God's word. Uh, he, he, he won't, won't take responsibility. And a man like that simply cannot be the representative of God before his own nation or before the world. And so we, we realize that, that Saul, we're beginning to realize that Saul is very deeply flawed. And of course, this is going to carry on uh, throughout the rest of all through chapter 15. So um, now the other thing with Samuel's words, which I know we've kind of gotten away from, uh, some commentators actually suggest that Samuel basically said this, not because the prophecy was true, that, that, that God was actually going to give Saul the kingdom, but it was a way to twist the knife. And uh, I don't necessarily think that's true, but I think you can see the elements of Samuel's personality that would allow for that. Sure. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you screwed up. So let me make sure you... <clears throat> really hurt from this so uh so sorry for the <laughs> little break there we're running into allergy issues again so because it's spring in oklahoma and um so the uh we're fighting the good fight <laughs> yeah so what were you uh what you were saying was um it is possible you can kind of see uh samuel's personality that he might have been kind of uh just kind of putting salt in the wound uh with his I words there I, I think it's less that I can see him doing it, but I can see why people would say that because he, like we've said so many times, he's that grumpy old man and he, he just has always been. So I, I, I can see how they get there from here. I, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think it's a correct conclusion. Um, the, um, the rest of the prophecy that, that Samuel gives, it's in verse 14b. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over the people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So man after your own heart, we're getting closer to David because right. everybody knows this is, this is who it's referring to. And the, the real question is, is did Samuel, well, there's two questions. 
did Samuel know that God was going to replace Saul before he got there? And did Samuel know who the replacement was going to be at this point? Right. And so we really, we don't know. But Samuel leaves and he leaves Saul alone. And, and symbolically, this is God leaving Saul. Right. And when the like, spirit like of the Lord. When the, when, like when the ark was taken from the temple. Or from well, the tabernacle. That and also when Samson's hair was cut. Mm -hmm. And so it's an act of judgment. It's a, a, an act of saying, you aren't worthy of, of, my, of being my representative, so I don't have to be with you. I, I don't have to put my seal of approval in or on you. Mm -hmm. So Sam, Saul's remaining army uh, follows him to Gibeah. He only has 600 men left, and that's you know, down from the original 3,000. And Samuel and Jonathan stay at Gibeah with the armies. Now, the, the Philistines, we're in verses 16 and 17 now. The Philistines send out raiders. And, and the Hebrew word for raiders is, is based on uh, a word that means to destroy. So yeah. the, the idea that these are just violent men who are going to, to cause utter destruction is part of this imagery. Uh, they're, they're mercenaries. They, they've been hired. We know this from, from archaeological records. The Philistines would hire men from other nations to fight on their behalf. Okay. They, they didn't always use their own armies. So we don't have to have a nation of 30,000 charioteers. We can have a nation that can hire 30,000 people to drive their chariots. And well, yeah, well, and as we discover uh, later on in the chapter, they're the they've got all the the metalworking stuff, so they probably are they probably are fairly rich and can afford that stuff. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely, and yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit because, but, I'm sorry, you cut out there, Nathan. I didn't say anything. Uh, oh, okay, I just got some kind of feedback in my. But anyway, um, so we've got these these mercenaries that they that they've hired. And in 16 and 17, basically what they accomplish is they, they cut Israel in half. They, they cut Saul off from any kind of help that he might have expected from the northern tribes. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he really is put at a disadvantage here. And the, the verses make it kind of sound, oh, okay, so this is what happened. But if you were living in this day and age, it, it would have been immediately apparent that this is a terrifying move by the by the Philistines, that this is pretty much going to guarantee they're going to win. So the writer also pauses in here in, in 19 through 23 to tell us kind of about the state of affairs, because he's realizing that from the time that this happened until the time that the book is written, things have changed. And they've changed so much that even people in his time might not realize what was really going on in this situation. So he says, hey, you need a little cultural background to get there. Mm -hmm. And he tells us that, you know, basically the Philistines are our expert blacksmiths. And they had a very tightly controlled uh, trade for, for ironwork that they are not just going to give it to anyone. And they're going to be particularly careful with the Israelites because if the Israelites don't have weaponry, then they're easier to control. They right. don't have to worry about an uprising. And so there's, there's that aspect of it. So you disarm the people. You get to have control as the ruling government. Mm -hmm. um, farm implements, which if you need, you know, 
a plow, then you need iron. Uh, that's going to be about the only thing strong enough to, to dig in that, that kind of soil. And they're outrageously expensive. Repairing farm implements, it, it outrageously expensive. So now you've got a stranglehold on their, on their food. And so the Israelites are completely dependent on the Philistines at this point for any kind of tools or weaponry. And, and even this uprising is pretty much saying, hey, we're willing to run a suicide mission to be free of them. Mm-hmm. So if a, if a country is willing, and I think we can kind of look around even in our present day, if a country is willing to overthrow the very government that they're dependent on to, to survive, things are bad. Right, right. This isn't like, you know, the Israelites are living on one side of the mountain and the Philistines are on the other and they're just clashing because they can't get along. The Philistines are exercising control and, and causing problems within the nation of Israel itself. Mm-hmm. This is why they have to be defeated. Otherwise, they could be ignored. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially you figure, uh, you know, like you said, they're, they're basically, they're controlling all of the implements that the Israelites are going to need in order to work the land, in order to, you know, to, to just even take care of, of, of getting their own supplies for their own survival. Yeah. And, you know, you start threatening somebody's family's food. You, 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 this is when people rise up. Mm-hmm. When people start starving, when you start watching children die, when you start, you know, watching grandma, you know, not getting enough to eat. They, these are things that motivate a nation to rise up. Sure. And that's been true throughout history. So the, the fact that the Philistines had such an impact on the economy, let's use a word that we can all uh, acknowledge and, and recognize and kind of, yeah. you know, in our day and age, when they have such an impact on economy, now you see why this is such a big deal. But, you know, the, the fact that there's not weapons or food available apart from some kind of assistance from this foreign government has made the Israelites decide they've had enough. And it, it, the level of um, weaponry is so, it's just, it, it's non-existent. Um, the only two people who have swords in the entire country are Saul and Jonathan. Right. And the fact that they have swords, the, the sages actually consider that to be a miracle, that God miraculously provided this for them. And this, you know, and so now you're going to look at this this army of 600 men. What are they fighting with? What what are oh, they going? Right, with? right. It, well, it, it, and and as far as the the Saul and Jonathan having a, a sword, I mean, sure, maybe God made them swords. That could be interesting. <laughs> I, I haven't heard that take on it. Um, but I would assume that if you have this this ruling class of people like the the Philistines who are kind of taking over everything, and they maybe they're just you know uh you know I'm trying to think of the word just exorbitant making exorbitant profits off of the the israelites through repairing their stuff or maybe they're more involved in the government than that and to the point where oh yeah well we'll have Saul and Jonathan they'll they'll be in charge of the day-to-day stuff um but we'll just come take the taxes or whatever um but we'll we'll go ahead and give them swords because that'll make them look more official, kind of thing. Well, is kind of what I would see it as. And and we have examples of that in history. Uh, I don't think we can 
get there from a biblical perspective, but we definitely see that happening in history where one kingdom would be dominating another. And we, well, we see it with Herod in Rome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this idea that, yes, you, you sure be the king over your ethnic group, your people that you come from, but you know, we're the ones with the real power. We'll give you a few symbols, but right. that, and like I said, I don't think that we can get there from a biblical perspective. Um, it doesn't contradict necessarily, I don't think. Um, but at the same time, it's definitely... Um, it's it's not explicit in the text, is, is I think. It's is a his- the... Yeah, it's a historical pro- possibility. Um, and, and like, yeah. It, it, so, conjecture. Uh, and conjecture with basis. But it, it does kind of give you an idea that, hey... This is how destitute the people are, and right. it, it and it wouldn't be also you know it wouldn't be surprising if you know the Israelites found a way to to get a couple of swords you know got a dead Philistine out in the field that may have got buried with his weaponry we can steal that you know all, all, there's all kinds of ways they can come up with swords right. and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, miraculous it might just be providential so um. Verse twenty three: the The Philistines advance against the king of God, uh, the, a king that God no longer supports, and so they're coming against Saul, who he he's on his own, and he's only got six hundred men. He's got two swords among everybody, and, and the, the chapter really closes with this cliffhanger: What is God going to do? Yeah, we got Saul out here doing this, but but God left when when Samuel left. God left. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now what? What 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 is the state of the nation? What what is the the future of this people? You know, is God going to use the Philistines to discipline as He has in the past? You know, the outside country coming into oppress and mm. and you're just like in Judges. Well, God would raise up a leader. So is there going to be a new leader raised up that has God's spirit? Uh, and the the writer just kind of leaves you there for a moment and makes you wonder what in the world is going to happen. Now, of course, they didn't have the same uh, chapter breaks that we do. <laughs> but at the same time, I think this is a very smart chapter break, which I don't often say that, uh, because you you do see that this is a this is a situation that needs to be pondered. Right, it, it's not just something you should blow by and go, oh, you know, Elvis has left the building. You know, no, the, these are real people struggling for survival under a ruler that God has abandoned. That should terrify them. I, I mean, I, and it does. And so, you know, are there, is there application for us today? I, I'm not going to get into politics today, but <laughs> I, I think that we need to be, you know, this is why we need to be praying for our rulers. We need to be praying for our governmental leadership because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our livelihood, our economy, our all of this stuff um, depends on God's favor and blessing and God's, um, I, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it. But God is behind it, okay, guys? That's all. That's what I'm trying to say. God <laughs> is the one who decides what's going to happen in this world, and we get to participate or not. And that's that's what the next story is going to be, is about the difference between somebody who observes the forms of religion and somebody who actually is ready to participate in God's plan. Yeah. And so that distinction there is, is significant. And so well, that's... Cool. Well. Well, yeah, well, that's, you know, seems like a smart tra- chapter break might be a good place to break the show because we are getting a little close to an hour here. So um, did you have anything else you wanted to tack on to 13 before we before we sign off? No, I think that's a pretty good place to pause. OK, well, um, 
Sounds good. Well, everyone uh, uh, via YouTube or your favorite podcast <laughs> uh, app or even the website, thank you for joining us. Um, we appreciate you being here and being a part of things. If you want to help support what we are doing, um, feel free to be part of the conversation at Raven Creek SC on all the social media or uh, please rate us or review us on iTunes. That does help us move up in the uh, 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 visibility uh, to kind of get the word out a little bit more about what we're doing. Um, in the meantime, um, I guess we'll see you on the internet and we'll be back hopefully next Monday and see if we can still continue to do a show remotely. <laughs> so yeah, everyone have a good one. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.